Hey, we're in a story this morning that strains credibility a little bit. Uh, and we'll talk about that as we work through. Uh, but before we do, we want to make sure that at the end of working through this text this morning, we're thinking about two primary things. The first is this. Do we bless who and what Jesus blesses? Do we bless? Do we speak blessing? Do we pray for blessing to those folks, those situations that Jesus blesses? Do we bless like Jesus blesses? And also, our loyalty. Do we have a faithfulness like Jesus has? Or is our loyalty, is it something that's for sale? Is it a commodity that we simply sell to the highest bidder? That's what we want to go away with. We're in the Heroes and Villains series this morning. And you remember, heroes are those who display Christ-like faithfulness. It's not that we have signs or wonders, it's Christ-like faithfulness. That's a hero in the faith. Villains are the opposite. It's faithlessness as Satan displayed. And this morning, we're looking at another villain. Uh, We have almost two times the number of heroes in this series that we do villains, but occasionally the villains come back to back, and that's the case last week and this week. So we'll be in Numbers 22. You can go there now if you want. This is the story of Balaam. And he was faithless because for a price, he tried to curse what God had blessed. For a price, he attempted to curse what God had blessed. And so we want to remind ourselves as we're working through the story, the big rocks we want to take away this morning. Faithfulness in the image of Christ means blessing who and what God blesses. In prayer or verbally, blessing what God blesses. Faithlessness, as we'll see in the life of Balaam, is to curse or attempt to curse that which God blesses. We're not taking God's tack on something. We're opposed to God's will and what He's doing in the lives of others. Faithfulness and loyalty in the image of Christ means to be faithful to our Father's call. Whatever the cost, we'll wind down with these points. And in that, it's not just a vertical faithfulness, it's also a horizontal faithfulness. This is something that's come up the last couple of weeks in Sunday school class also. But that if we love what our Father loves, we love His family. And we love those for whom Christ has died. So it's a vertical faithfulness to God that also translates into a horizontal faithfulness to others as well. Faithfulness and loyalty in the life of Balaam, as we'll see, were commodities to be sold. So we're going to look at the story of Balaam, and I'll just point out on the map, it's nice if we've got a bit of geography in our minds. Mind's eye anyway, let's see if I can do this, maybe. Okay, so Israel's come out of Egypt. So the exodus has occurred. We've already been through these stories. They've been to Sinai. They've been almost the full length of their 40 years in the wilderness. So Egypt would be down here. And they've come up along the east side of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River Valley. And they're going to call for Balaam. And Balaam, as we'll read in the text, he comes from up north somewhere around the Euphrates River. He's going to come down. Moab is right here. Ammon would be about right here. The Amorites are all through here. These will all come up in the story. So Balaam's going to come down from the north and he's going to be the center of our story here this morning. Uh, And the point that we pick up in Numbers 22, Israel has already confronted the Amorites in battle. They defeated the Amorites. And that's why Balak, king of Moab, is frightened. That's why the Moabites are frightened as well. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Numbers 22 
Guys, this is another lesson uh, where there's a ton of, of information. There's a lot of story. We're compressing three plus chapters into a very brief scenario. And we just want to get these main points about blessing and loyalty. So there's, there's a lot we won't cover. We're going to run through this as quickly as we can for time's sake. So Numbers 22, starting at verse 1, the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab, you saw on the map there, beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, who were their neighbors, the Midianites, this horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of a field. This is a particularly apt um, description because this land was famous for grazing. And so Balak says they're going to be like a herd of cattle that come in. They're going to eat us out of house and home. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amah. I'm reading from the ESV, by the way, if you read another verse, it'll have a different word there. To call him saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth. They're dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they're too mighty for me. Perhaps I'll be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed. He whom you curse is cursed. Balaam has a reputation far and wide. If he blesses, they're blessed. If he curses, they're cursed. Balak's hope is Balaam curses and then we're able to defeat them. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination. Balaam doesn't give away his services for nothing. They're, they're taking the cost, what it does to do business with him. Fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and they gave him Balak's message and he said to them, okay, lodge here tonight and I'll bring back Word to you as the Lord speaks to me. Now, if you're looking at your Bible, Lord is probably all capital letters there, and that's important for our story. We've got a pagan prophet who says he's going to speak to Yahweh. So Lord, all caps, is translating Yahweh, the proper name for God. So we're not mistaken. He's going to, to try and address some minor deity or some local God. He says, I'm going to go talk to Yahweh. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam and God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, covers the face of the earth. Now come curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God says to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning. He said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come. So, guys, that's as much as I'm going to read. So now we're just jumping through, okay? We've got to get through chapter 24. These are the points of the story. If you've read this, it's a well-known story, right? Because it's got some particularly strange elements in it. So King Balak sends another group, second group, promising greater riches to Balaam if he'll come and curse Israel. Balaam says, guys, it doesn't matter the amount of money. It won't matter. I've, I've got to do what God commands. 
He consults the Lord a second time, and this time God tells him to go with the men, only do what I tell you, only say what I tell you. So along the way, God confronts Balaam in anger over his willingness to attempt to curse the ones God had blessed. This is the most memorable element of the story. So the angel of the Lord, uh, Balaam is on his donkey, and he's going down with these guys from Balak. He's going down to meet up with Balak. And he's on his donkey, and three times Balaam's donkey sees the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn in front of him, and three times he avoids the angel. So he gets out in the field, crushes up against a wall, and finally just sits down on his haunches. And each time Balaam beats him and abuses him verbally, and he wants to kill him. He said, if I had a sword, I'd kill you. God opens the mouth of the donkey who complains about the beatings, and Balaam just carries on a conversation with him just like you and I would every day. No big deal. My donkey's talking to me and I'm talking back. God opens Balaam's eyes and he sees the angel. The angel explains that the donkey has just saved his life three times. And then the angel reaffirms, but you now, you go down to Balak, but you only speak what God gives you to say. So Balaam gets down. He meets up with Balak and all the officials of Moab. And three times they take seven bulls and seven rams on seven different altars and they offer these sacrifices so that Balaam, after these sacrifices are offered, he'll get God's word and he'll speak. Now remember, Balak, there's only one reason Balaam's here. It's to curse Israel so Moab can defeat them. But each time you go through all this labor, you make all these offerings, and then Balak sets Balaam up and he's going to curse Israel. Now that's what Balak thinks. And each time, Balaam blesses Israel. And Balak's losing his mind. After the last time, Balak says, you just go home. You get nothing. I brought you down to curse. You haven't cursed. Just go home. Well, Balaam turns around a fourth time and blesses Israel again. And then he gives three more prophecies about other nations in that area. So he ends up prophesying seven times. Four of those are blessing on God's people. <clears throat> and I was talking just before the service started. Talking donkeys. Have you guys ever seen a, talk, a talking donkey in a movie? I'll bet a few of you have here. But they, they didn't come up with that, did they? This is from the Bible. Stranger Things. Anybody heard of this TV show? They didn't, we, Stranger Things didn't start on the TV show, did it? It started in the Bible. All these stories are great. We, we've got a strange story, right? It's strange on anybody's radar. So you've got a talking donkey. There's, there's elements that we want to talk about first we say all scripture is inspired by god and is profitable right so if we're in a story and there are odd strange elements in the story there's two things we can do about these the first is this because god's included them in his word they're worth studying so we don't understand something lord what are we meant to take away from this what's your thought on this what are we meant to understand that's one thing the other thing though is this Guys, there are texts in the Scripture that people argue about since they were written and through history and today. And what we don't want to do is we don't want to miss the main points trying to figure out subpoints or secondary points. So we'll treat as we can some three anomalies in this story, try and answer them briefly, but then we want to get to the primary issues that the story raises, which has to do with blessing and cursing and loyalty. Blessing and cursing and loyalty. So let's talk about some of the subpoints here. As we do, we want to point this out. This story is meant to be like a tragic comedy. 
if you think of Greek theater or Shakespeare, you know, comedies, everybody lives and there's laughs along the way. Tragedies, everybody dies. Well, this is a mix of both. So there's these comic elements in this story, but it ends in cursing and death, so it's also a tragedy. So we want to bring that kind of literary mindset into this. So you got a pagan prophet who's talking to Yahweh. And guys, we need to understand, he's called a diviner. He's a shaman. He's a witch. He's practicing the very things that God said in the law that Moses gave to Israel would fall under the death penalty. So he's not a nice guy. He's not a normal Joe. He he practices the kind of witchcraft that's absolutely forbidden by God. The donkey talks back to Balaam. Balaam talks to the donkey. And the third is this. God tells Balaam to go and then he's mad at him for going. So we want to clear these away and then we'll get to the main thrust of the story. The first is this. Uh, did God really speak? Did Yahweh really speak to Balaam? And this is the thing. The text says he did. Absolutely he did. So the author of this account in Numbers, we assume this is Moses, he says that Balaam spoke to Yahweh. The author of Numbers writes Yahweh. He could have just said God. We could have thought it's some pagan deity, but it's not. It's Yahweh that he addresses, and Yahweh speaks back. And that raises the question, what is God doing talking to this pagan prophet? Is, is this normal? What do we make of that? And there's a lot of in this we just say we're not really sure. The story just is, reads like Balaam has talked to Yahweh before. Has he talked to him before? Don't know. Did he have a relationship with him before? We don't know. It's a strange relationship that someone who practices something that God curses and calls for the death penalty on is talking to God and God's talking back. So don't know what that looked like before. Not sure what some of that might have looked like afterwards either. We do know that God uses this guy to pronounce blessing on His people. We'll see that here in the rest of the story. But we could also say this. In the Old Testament, we, we read a story about somebody named Job. And we don't know where Job fits in. He's not in the line of Abraham. He's not in the covenant people. And yet it's clear he knows God and God knows him. Has a relationship with him. Moses' father-in-law, Ruel, is the priest of Midian. What does that mean? Does he worship Yahweh also? He's not part of Israel. What's with that? One of the clearest examples, though, to me of this, and we could, we could at least render it down to this, God will speak through anyone He chooses to. So He speaks through a pagan prophet and He also speaks through a donkey in this story. But you've got the example in the New Testament. It's John 11.50 where Caiaphas, the high priest, is a wicked man who condemns God in the flesh, Jesus. And out of his mouth, he says when they're going to try to arrest Jesus and condemn Him against the law, against who and what He is, Caiaphas says, and the text is clear, he says, by the Holy Spirit... It's better that one man die for the nation than the nation die. Caiaphas is not a saved man. He's not a friend of God, but the Spirit of God speaks through him anyway. We can at least say that about Balaam. Not sure why. Not sure what this looked like apart from our story, but it's clear that God does speak through Balaam. The second is this, related to this talking donkey. So, if if you're talking with someone that uh, isn't a believer and they say, do you really believe? that a donkey spoke, what do you tell them? Do you, is, this, is this problematic for us? Uh, so what if they ask you, did a fish really swallow a man for three days alive? Do you, 
Do you believe the fish story? Do you believe the donkey story? Do you believe the fish story? What about, uh, do you really believe that Noah got all those animals on the boat and everybody else died? Do you really believe that? These incredible Stranger Things stories, do we really believe that? I'm simple and I just say, yeah, it's a narrative and I believe that's exactly what happened. The boat's true, the animals are true, the donkey's true, the donkey really spoke. I think for us, some, we can turn this question on its head and say something like this, would it not be stranger if the God of all creation didn't upset things once in a while to make sure we knew it was Him that was talking? And that's one of the themes in the New Testament, especially John's Gospel. Jesus says, the miracles I do that no one else can do, they verify who I am and what I'm saying. Would it not be strange if the God of the universe didn't upset the apple cart occasionally, just so we know this is God because someone else, a mere mortal, or a demon, or a spirit, couldn't do what we just saw done. Now you can turn this the other way. 2 Thessalonians brings up the fact that there's going to come a time when God allows a deluding influence to come on the earth, and there will be signs and wonders performed that will be so fantastic that people will believe messages about the Antichrist and a false, false prophet. But that's only after they've rejected the proclamation, the clear proclamation of the Gospel. So here, I'm assuming God's upsetting the apple cart because He's making a point. And this is part of the comedic part of the story. In the Old Testament, when it talks about Samuel the prophet, it says in those days, prophets were all also called seers because they see spiritual reality that other people don't see. So think of this story for just a second. The donkey sees the angel of the Lord and the prophet doesn't. The donkey has greater spiritual perception than the prophet. And when the donkey speaks, the donkey simply speaks the truth. Whereas we'll see in Balaam's story, Balaam blesses on one hand, but he figures out a way to sort of do an end around God's will to curse Israel at the end of the day. The, the donkey has greater spiritual insight than the prophet, and the donkey speaks truth more readily than does the prophet who's been hired to come down. So this is spo we're supposed to get our attention. This is Balaam sort of compared to a donkey. He doesn't come up well. And last, what's the deal? God tells Balaam to go down, and then he gets ticked at him for going. What's with that? We didn't read all of this story, so you can read it when you get home if you'd like to. I think it goes something like this. Do you remember Israel said to God when He takes them up to the land of promise at Kadesh Barnea, He says, we're going to go in now. And Israel says, we're not going in. And God says to them, okay, then you won't go in. He gives them what they want even though it's not in their best interest because they said, we don't want to follow you. Balaam wanted to go the first time. <clears throat> the story, this will be borne out here at the end of the message. He wants to go because he wants the money. But it's like when he goes out, he tells the guy, my dad won't let me come out and play. It's not that I don't want to come out. I want to come out. I want to come out. I want the money. I want to go do what they want me to do. But God forbid me. So God gives Balaam what he wants. He lets him go because Balaam wants to go. But it's not going to come out well for Balaam in the end. One of the lessons for us is we don't want for ourselves what God doesn't want for us. We don't want God to cave and give us what he knows otherwise is not in our best interest. But that's what he does with Balaam. So when he opposes him in the road, 
Balaam gets, uh, this isn't what my father wanted me to do, really. Sorry, not my father, but God, Yahweh wanted me to do. We might say, we don't want to be in that position where we're doing what God really doesn't want us to do. It never, never ends well. So let's get into the main rocks of the story. And this has to do with blessing and cursing. Guys, curse or a variation comes up 16 times in this story. The term curse. Bless or its variation comes up 11 times. So if we're cursing, we're calling for harm. We're calling for the withdrawal of a benefit. We're asking for some negative thing to happen to someone. For blessing, we're asking that someone would bestow goodness, success, or favor. Now, if you were a Jew hearing this story for the first time or reading this text, and you hear this thing about blessing and cursing, your mind would probably go back to Genesis 12.3. Because as heirs of Abraham, you know that God had said, those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. That language of blessing and cursing would have been very familiar to them. Now, four times, Balaam does bless Israel, God's people. He speaks for God and he blesses. And I'm just going to run through these quickly. Chapter 22, this is verses 7 through 10. Balaam's looking out over Israel over the plain and he says, How can I curse those God hasn't cursed? Israel's unique among the nations. Israel is upright. In fact, he prays for himself, I'd like to die the death of the righteous like them. 23, verses 18 through 24. God has blessed them. I can't do otherwise. God is with them. God gives them the strength of a wild ox. Chapter 24, verses 3 through 9. Israel's king and kingdom will be exalted. And then he quotes Genesis 12:3, Blessed are those who bless you. Cursed are those who cursed you. And last at chapter 24, verses 15 through 19, this is a text, even if you're not familiar with the story, you may know this text from Christmas stories. Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. A scepter, of course, held in the hands of kings. When people say, how did the magi, the magicians of Matthew's uh, narrative of the birth of Jesus, the wise men, the magi come from the east and they say, we saw his star and we know your king has been born. The best assumption is that they knew Numbers 24. They knew this fourth prophecy of Balaam. Remember that the Jews were in Babylon for 70 years. Actually, for two millennia. They were there just until this last century. So the Jewish writings were there. They would have been studied by the wise men. And these words of Balaam are probably what clued them in that Jesus' birth had occurred. They followed the star from Numbers 24. So, Balaam blesses. And so far, so good. But then he doesn't. And this you get in chapter 25. So, to this point... He he has simply repeated the words God wanted him to. You can go, but you only say what I've given you to say. But if you get down to chapter 25, something different occurs. The story here says, the daughters of Moab invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The Moabites are afraid of Israel. They're afraid they're going to be wiped out by Israel. And yet, this story says the young gals from Moab, they went to Israel and they invited the young men, the young Jewish men, 
to come to their party. They said, hey, we've got a barbecue. We'd love for you to come. It's at the base of this mountain. You come and we'll have a great time. And so the Jewish boys go with them. And this is an offering to Baal. And it's not just a barbecue. It's not just a party. It's sexual immorality bowing down to another god, to a foreign god. And you say, this sounds odd because the Moabites are afraid of Israel. So what's the deal? What happened? Because Israel is now cursed. And we're going to bring up this part of the story in the future when we look at the life of Phineas, a hero of the faith. But you've got to ask yourself, what happened? What led the Moabite women to do this plan? Because they're afraid of Israel. And this is what we get in Numbers 31, verse 16. It says, Behold, these, the Moabite women, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and so the plague came among the congregation of Israelites. So we'll just say here, death comes out of this, of course. There's a plague in the camp of Israel because the unfaithfulness of the Jews in this idolatry. It's not until you get to Numbers 31 that you realize what has happened. So Balak said to Balaam, I want you to curse. And Balaam comes down and he can't curse. But he goes apparently on the side to Balak and he says he still wants the money. He's a greedy guy and he wants the money. And he apparently goes to Balak on the side and he says something like this. Look, I can't curse them for you. But this is what you could do. You could send your women. This was Balaam's idea. You could send your women. So what you can't confront frontally, you're not going to overwhelm them frontally. Maybe you can get in from the side. Maybe you can get them to join you. If you can't defeat them, get them to join you. And that's exactly what happens. And this leads to idolatry and death for Israel. And it's because Balaam gave this idea to the Moabites. So he blessed on one hand, but he figured out a way to curse on the other hand. And if you think of other stories in the Old Testament, guys, think of David's story, you know, his great sin with Bathsheba. The rest of Israel, they're out confronting an enemy at a city. They're laying siege to a city. There's a frontal assault by which you could be harmed. David's not there. He's not subject to a frontal assault, but what he is subject to is a temptation at home. And one of the things we need to be aware of is this. Sometimes we're acutely aware of something that might harm us from the outside, so we're careful where we go or who we're talking with, and we forget that we might be susceptible to a temptation that comes in through the side. And that's what happened to Israel. It wasn't a frontal assault, and Balaam couldn't curse them outright. What he did was he got them to curse themselves by falling to this temptation. So even if we get over some assault that someone's waged against us, it doesn't mean that the the fight is over. It doesn't mean that we don't need to pay attention to what's going on in our heart. What is the temptation that's coming in from other parts as well? So Balaam here was faithless to God because he found a means of cursing Israel. So this is the theme of blessing and cursing. The whole series about becoming like Christ. The Holy Spirit is in all those who have trusted Christ for salvation. He's conforming us to the image of Christ. That looks like blessing. Here's a few verses that talk about what it looked like for Jesus to bless and what our paradigm is for blessing as well. You remember Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn, but to save. He said in John 10.10, I've come so that you can have life, not a little, but a lot. And what does He tell His followers? 
references are on your sheet. Luke 6.28, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Romans 12.14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. These are words we say to other people. My favorite is 1 Peter 3.9. Don't repay, and this is in the context of Jesus and Jesus' suffering and Jesus' response. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't repay reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called. You were called to bless others, Peter says. Christians are called to bless others even in the face of persecution and oppression. Even when others revile or curse us, we are called to bless. And it says that you may obtain a blessing. We are blessed in Christ. And when we bless others as Christ does, we get additional blessing. One of the things at least is this. If you pray for those who don't like you, it's hard to keep an embittered spirit towards them. It's easy to be free of unforgiveness and bitterness if we're blessing those who otherwise are attempting to curse or harm us. But this is what Jesus did. And guys, this is certainly key in our culture at this time. How well do you think the evangelical church is doing at blessing when we're reviled? So this is my deal. Just look at social media. Just check your Facebook accounts. How well do you think evangelicals are doing at blessing when we're cursed or reviled? I don't think we're doing very well. I don't think we measure up very well. In a culture that sort of has stooped to the low blows as just the norm, Christians should look different because we bless even when others are reviling us. And if social media is any indication, I don't think we do very well at this. It doesn't make, mean we don't speak truth. It doesn't mean we don't speak convicting truth. It doesn't mean we don't say something is right and something is wrong. But are Christians, are evangelicals today known for blessing others even when they're being reviled or cursed? I wish I could say that's the case. I don't think it is. So Balaam's, you've got this faithlessness in blessing. And you've also got faithlessness related just to his loyalty. What was he after? Balaam tells him, hey, come down and I'll give you money. And Balak does. And Balaam says, oh, I can't because it's whatever God says. That's all I can do. And at that level, it sounds like, okay, he's God's guy. He just says, whatever God says, that's what I'm going to do. Only we find out that's not actually the case. So, 2 Peter, this is another uh, issue from this text. If we don't know what all the Bible says about a, a person or a subject, we don't know what the Bible teaches about that person or subject. So we want to read all the Bible, right? The whole thing. So we've got these, the story in Numbers, first five books of the Bible, and guess where he comes up again? Balaam comes up in the last book of the Bible. He comes up in the last epistles of the Bible. So listen to this from 2 Peter. 2 Peter 2, where Peter is warning the church about false prophets in his day, and this has been true ever since. And Peter there says, they've gone astray, they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. What was Balaam's sin? Well, in part it was he was greedy. He wanted the money. He wanted the stuff. He wanted the social standing, I suspect, as well. He wanted all this stuff for himself. It says the gain from wrongdoing. And listen to the way this, this portion ends. 
He says he was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained, listen to what Peter calls it, the prophet's madness. Peter says when you and I are motivated by greed, it's a form of madness. You've lost your mind. You're no longer acting rationally because you think you're going to cave on something God wants you to do and it'll be worth it. And Peter says it's never worth it. It's a form of madness. Irrationality. Balaam wanted the stuff. Jude picks up the same theme. Jude 11 says, speaking of the same people, they walked in the way of Cain. They have a murderous spirit. They're not Christ-loving. And they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. They're just like Balaam. They want what they can get. And last is Revelation 2, verse 14. This is when Jesus speaks, and He's speaking to a church, by the way. If you read these stories and think we're not susceptible to this, Jesus says this to the church at Pergamum. He says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. So people in the church in the first century hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Balaam's teaching led to sin. Specifically here it says to sexual immorality. And he says there's people in the church that hold the same views. In the first century church. Sometimes people look back with star-filled eyes and say, oh, the early church... It's like, no, they had all the sins we've got today. They had the sins of Balaam, just like we have today as well. This has always been the same. But that was in the church, the sin of Balaam. Balaam's loyalty was for hire. His story starts by saying they brought him the cost of his fee, his service. And then his story ends when it says to us here that he got the gain of wrongdoing. And of course, that brought about his own death. So you see that not only... Did Balaam end up cursing through temptation those God meant to bless? But he also has zero loyalty to the God he said, I can only do what he tells me to do. That was false as well. We compare this to Christ again, and we looked at some of these verses in the first message of the series, but I want to point them out as we wind down. Jesus said in John 4.34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and accomplish His work. If someone asked us today, what, what's the goal of your life? What would you say in a sentence? What's the goal for my life? Or if someone says, do you have another Christian ask you? Do you have a Scripture verse that's particularly meaningful to you? What, what might it be? What would it say about us? What's our goal? Jesus says His was to fulfill, accomplish the Father's work. You see the same thing in John 6.38. And by the way, remember, this is not just a vertical loyalty. I said this at the beginning, but it needs to be reiterated. John 13, 1, Jesus loved His own and He loved them to the end. And guys, again, in the culture that we're in, remember next to holiness, the second quality of God that's referred to more often than any other in the Old Testament specifically is God's loyal or faithful love. And it is in short supply today. It's in short supply in the church as well. If we love God, we will love His other children And we will certainly love the world that Christ died for in sharing the Gospel, in loving as Christ loved, meeting the needs we're able to. So this is vertical and it's horizontal. And I can't can't help but think that the vertical love for the evangelical church is a bit off today because there doesn't appear to be a lot of loyal love horizontally. 
When you have one, you almost always have the other. So that's what Jesus practiced. It was faithfulness, whatever the cost. Jesus says in Revelation 2, verse 10, this is to the church at Smyrna. Some of them had been arrested. They were being reviled. They were being imprisoned. And Jesus told them, be faithful to death and I'll give you the crown of life. Be faithful. Whatever the cost is here, be faithful. It'll be worth it in the end. Don't give up. Don't sell out. Don't sell short. Hold on. It'll be worth it in the end. So as we wind down, is our loyalty for sale? I know on the front end we just say no way. But let me ask it this way. Uh, do you and I, do we have areas of our life where we tend to sin? <laughs> do we have practices in our life where we tend to sin? And if we do, and most of us do, I would say that's the price of our loyalty. What are we characterized by? And if we're characterized by sin in particular areas, that's the cost of our loyalty. Now, I don't say this to be a hammer. All of us have these issues, right? This is, <laughs> you know, the more you walk with Christ, the more sin you see in your own life. We get more of Christ's view of things, the more we see sin in our own lives. Things we thought before were okay, we learn, nope, my conscience is more sensitive than it was before. But we want to be real about this. Lord, where in my life do I live like Balaam? He was alive in the early church. That spirit was alive in the early church. I don't think we're better than the early church was. Is our loyalty for sale? Do we have areas in our life where we say, Lord, I'm glad to obey you here, here, and here, but in this area, I'm still holding on to this for myself. Well, that's the cost of our loyalty. If we're for sale, it's just a matter of what the price is, not if we're loyal. Balaam's end, Balaam, you know, these things never end well, do they? Like Korah before him, he's a cautionary tale. Joshua 13.22 and Numbers 31.8 both tell us the same thing. When war broke out between Moab and Israel, Balaam also, the son of Beor, the one who, and when Joshua describes him, he says the one who practiced divination or the one who practiced witchcraft. He doesn't say the one that blessed Israel. He doesn't say the prophet, the pagan prophet that God spoke through. He says the one who practiced witchcraft was killed with the sword by the people of Israel among the rest of their slain. Balaam's end was death at the sword of the people he had cursed. The one who had cursed God's people found himself cursed. His life was ended by Israel's sword. Are we blessing what God blesses and are we speaking the language of blessing to others? Are we faithful along the way Jesus is faithful? Those are the questions I hope we go away with. We want to bless, not curse. We want our loyalty in all the ways we can. We want it to be steadfast like Christ was. Guys, the worship team's going to come up. And if you would, the rest of you stand with me. I want to read, by the way, I'll tell you this. When we read text at the end of... I don't ask you to repeat after me. I say read God's Word. That's what we do. So I'm telling this isn't Mike. These aren't Mike's words. These are God's words. And I want to end today on this uh, number six. This is a prayer. This is a blessing. You can stand. This is a blessing that God said... To Aaron, this is the way I want you to bless my people when you bless them. So let's read this together, okay? This is Aaron's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. 